Well, we are beginning the Advent season where we celebrate and remember the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Advent, if you don't know, consists of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas with the climactic ending occurring on Christmas Eve. As you can see, there are four small candles surrounding one larger white candle. The word Advent is actually derived from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. In the societies of the Roman Empire, they would use this word to describe the coming of persons of honor, dignity, or royalty. A king, an emperor, or even a god with a little g. For Christians, of course, Advent is the time when we, the church, celebrate the coming and prepare for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even though Advent occurs in the month of December in which we celebrate his birth, which if I'm sure most of you know now he wasn't born in December. It was probably in the spring sometime. But it's not simply about waiting for his birth. Advent is as much about preparing for Christ's second coming as it is about looking back at his first coming. Actually, the Advent season, we could say, focuses on Christ's threefold coming, past, present, and future. We look back to his first coming when he came as a little child born in a stable to Mary and Joseph. We celebrate His current presence with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And He presides with us by His Spirit, even now, in all believers. And then we look to the future, to His second triumphal coming, in which we will see Him in the east, coming in the clouds, and He will come back to take His church and to judge the living and the dead. On the last day, the Advent wreath, as you can see here, or if you can see, consists of five candles. You've got the four smaller ones surrounding this one larger white one. The evergreen that surrounds the candles represent the eternal and ending life that Christ has won for all believers. And each individual candle represents a different aspect of the Christmas season and celebration. The first candle, you can see there's three purple, one pink here. The first candle that we will talk about today is the prophet candle. It symbolizes the hope and the anticipation as we look back to the Old Testament that the Old Testament saints had of their Messiah who God had promised to come. The second purple candle is the Bethlehem candle. It represents the lowly estate through which our Savior, our God, our King of kings and Lord of lords came. The humility of Christ who took on flesh for us. There's the third candle here, this pink candle. It's called the shepherd's candle. And and we could even call that our candle because it represents that he came to the lowly, to those with the greatest need. And who among us are more needy than sinners lost and going to hell? And then the fourth candle is the angel candle. 
It reminds us of the heavenly host that proclaimed his coming to those lowly shepherds. And then the fifth and final candle, the center candle, is the Christ candle. It's the largest for it should receive the most attention. And it's white, which represents the purity of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, yet died a sinner's death for you and for me. So not only do we represent His coming, but His going to an old rugged cross for us on our behalf. If you'll turn with me this morning to Isaiah, as I light this first candle the prophet candle, and hopefully not anything else this morning. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and we will begin the Advent season here with the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, and if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word in honor of him and what he has given to us. Isaiah chapter 7, and we will read verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a, what is it, sign. That's good. I like that. You guys anticipated that, didn't you? I appreciate that. The Lord himself will give you a sign. And here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what is it? Emmanuel, which means God with us. You may be seated. Jesus said to his disciples, a wicked and perverse generation looks for a sign. And yet God, the father who stands alone in his holiness, who is perfect in everything he does, said, I will give them a what is it? A sign. For the Messiah. When I was in seminary in Kansas City, Katie and I were dating She lived in Nashville. I lived in Kansas City. And one particular weekend, her parents gave us a gift by saying that they would take us to a Cardinals game. And so Katie planned to come from Nashville to St. Louis. I got her a hotel room, reserved a hotel room for her so that she could come spend the night. And then we would all meet her uh, and her family and I would all meet her there the next morning and we would go to the Cardinals game. We were excited. We were looking forward to it. Well, Katie had gotten off work that evening, and she began her trip to St. Louis. And because she got off work later, she got to St. Louis fairly late in the evening. It was about 10.30 at night, and she was downtown St. Louis, and she had printed off directions from the computer. But what the computer didn't tell her is that there was construction going on, and there were detours, and they didn't give her the detours. So she got to downtown St. Louis Dark, 10.30 at night, lost and alone. And so I get this call at 10.30. I'm sitting in my seminary dorm room. And a frantic Katie, I don't know if frantic might be a little bit dramatic. No, a frantic Katie, and I did ask her if I could tell the story, by the way. A frantic Katie saying, I'm lost. I'm in St. Louis. It's dark. I'm afraid somebody's going to shoot me. And her next words were priceless to me. Now, I'm in Kansas City. She's in St. Louis. 
I'm in a dorm room. She's in her car somewhere downtown. At this time, GPS is not something that is known by the public or at least used very much by the public. I did have computer and internet and I think it was, I don't know, some, some online map platform that I was using. But these were her words. I am lost. You figure out where I am and you tell me how to get to where I need to go. Okay, sure thing. Let me get right on that. Now, looking back, she'll admit that was pretty ridiculous to expect me to just, you know, pinpoint in on where she was at that exact moment in the large town of St. Louis and then to figure out how to get to the hotel from where she was. And so my response was, okay, sweetheart, I'll do everything that I can, but you have to give me some kind of landmark. Can you see any road signs? If you can tell me at least a little bit of information about where you are, I might be able to find out your location and then tell you how to get to where you need to go. And she saw some buildings, some names of some buildings. She saw a street sign. And by God's grace, we figured out where she was, and she got to where she needed to go. But without the signs, there would have been, a, there would have been, a, there would have been no way to help her, to point her in the right direction, to identify where she was and where she needed to go. A wicked and perverse generation looks for signs, and yet our great, glorious, and loving God has in His grace given us signs. He has pointed us in the right direction. We need a Savior. He had promised a Messiah all the way back to Adam and Eve. Someone who would crush the head of Satan. But we had no way to find that Messiah. We had no idea who He was, how to identify Him. Therefore, we did not which way to go. Did not know which way to go. But God has given us signs, and He gave them to us through the prophets of old. And so today, we're going on a journey We're going on a journey to see the signs which identify Jesus as the one and true Messiah. Because the question is, the Messiah has come, who is he? Or has he come? God made all these grand and great promises in the Old Testament, but how do we know that they're true? How do we know that he's come? How do we know whom to go to? Well, God has given us the signs. He has shown us the way. As we celebrate the advent of Jesus Christ, we all look backward to His coming with the comfort and luxury of hindsight. It's kind of not fair for us now. I mean, how many years have you been doing this whole Christmas and Advent thing? Some of you more than others, perhaps. But most of us, at least for several years, we've been doing this whole thing. We've been reading the Christmas story, how Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem for the census. And labor started that night. I'm sure Mary was freaking out. 
Seriously, God, now, here? Went into a stable. There was no room in the inn. And she had her baby. And his name was Jesus. The one who would save his people from their sins. We know the story. We've read it a million times. We have the luxury of hindsight. And so, therefore, because of that luxury, and it is a luxury, we now know, or at least we should, the familiarity with that story, I believe, robs us of some of the wonder and excitement that that story should bring to our hearts and our lives. I believe that we've lost something of the excitement and the joy and the wonderment and the, the magnitude of Jesus Christ, the Lord, has come. The Messiah has come. He, he's been here. And He accomplished all that the Father sent Him to do for you and for me. Do you feel that this morning? Or has the Christmas story just become something that we light candles for and, and, and decorate the church, which looks great, by the way. Thank you, church, for the wonderful job you did. Or maybe the night before Christmas we gather around a book and read the story about Jesus being born in a manger. And that's the totality of the Christmas story for us. My goal today, and I have two goals, I want to accomplish two things today. Because of this familiarity, I want to show you the signs of prophecy pointing to Jesus as the one and true Messiah. I want us to truly recognize Jesus' interjection into history as nothing less than a divine, miraculous appointment. The greatest thing to ever happen. So that we will all see, as if for the first time, the signpost pointing to the identity of God's Messiah and feel in our bones the excitement of that. I pray that it will make you certain of who that man is. May we all be convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. That's my first goal. My second goal is this. Based on this confidence and the faithfulness of God in sending the Messiah, just as He promised, I want all of us today to be strengthened in our faith, to look forward to and wait faithfully for the promises of God in our life that He is yet to fulfill. The future coming of His Son but also all of the promises that He's given to us to never leave us or to forsake us, to provide for us, to give us what we need in the moment to accomplish His will. All of those promises that He's given to every believer, looking back to the fulfillment of the promised Messiah, it will strengthen our faith to wait for the promises that He has yet to fulfill in our lives. Now let me tell you how I want to accomplish these two goals. First, we're going to have a lesson in prophecy. So my first way of accomplishing this 
goal is to give you a lesson in Old Testament prophecy. Then we're going to have a math lesson. Doesn't that sound exciting this morning? Did that just give you chills? Yeah, I'm sure it did. Don't, don't tune out just because I said math lesson, okay? It's brief. And I think it's interesting enough, at least, to draw you in and to solidify in your mind and your heart that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Okay, first, a lesson in prophecy. Now, there are three types of biblical prophecy. And I'm dealing today primarily, this is, this is a, there, well, I say types. This is kind of confusing. There is foretelling, which is telling of a future event that is yet to happen. And then there's foretelling, maybe identifying what God is currently up to or teaching scripture. That's a form of prophecy, even though I do not believe the office of prophet still exists. I, in, in one way or another, every Sunday am prophesying to you as I open up the word of God. But, but we're going to deal with the foretelling type of prophecy today. And underneath that foretelling type, there are three subtypes. There's prophecies relating to individual persons or places, such as when Nathan told David that the child that was conceived between him and Bathsheba would not live, would not survive. There's eschatological prophecy. That's end times prophecy. That's the whole book of Revelation. And then there's messianic prophecy, prophecies relating to the Messiah to identify or to give signs to his identity. And the third type today, the messianic prophecies, is, of course, what we are going to be looking at. Now, as we begin our journey, you need to know a few more things about prophecy. There are at least 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written over a period of about a thousand years and was finished at least, now probably well before, but at least 200 years before the birth of Christ. So this means that every single one of those 300 messianic prophecies were made at least 200 years before Jesus was born. That is important for us to know so that these have clout in our lives, so that they mean something. And that's what makes them so amazing and miraculous. Because those who lived before Christ, they only had the prophecies. They only had the promises. They didn't have the fulfillment. They didn't have the, 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 the Christmas story to read around their Christmas trees. They just had promises unfulfilled IOUs from God, so to speak. And as Hebrews 11 tells us, the Old Testament saints faithfully waited on a promise which they never saw fulfilled, not in their lifetime. So as much as you can this morning, I want to ask you to suspend your hindsight knowledge of the Christmas story. And travel back with me in your minds to try and experience how those who lived in the B.C. era, that's before Christ, how they felt. 
by looking at the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, I want us to try and experience as much as we can what those who lived before Jesus and were waiting for him, waiting for his coming, what they experienced and felt in their wait. And then feel, really feel the unrivaled joy of being an eyewitness to the fulfillment of that long-awaited promise. I think in doing this, we can then relate to their anxiousness, their uncertainty, their impatience, the temptation for disbelief, and their tendency to forget what was promised, causing them to wonder and stray. We can sympathize with them, but we can also rejoice as Ananias did when he saw Jesus in the temple. So what I want to do now is just take a look at a few of these prophecies and then their fulfillment, using them as proof, as signs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah from God. So now now comes the bit tedious point. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. This is a little bit tedious, but it's good. It's important. It's significant. So let's hit it. Let's hit it hard and let's hit it fast. Okay? You with me? You there? All right, let's do this. First off, we have the promise that the Messiah would come through the seed of Abraham. And what I'm going to do for each of these prophecies is I'm going to give you the Old Testament prophecy and the New Testament fulfillment. The Old Testament prophecy for this is found in Genesis 22, verse 18. And God said to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And we see the fulfillment of it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, as Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus. He says the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David, who was the descendant of Abraham. Now, I realize we just have to take Matthew's word for it, at least at this point. But we can go back, and Matthew does this, and goes through all the generations all the way back. To show the genealogy of the Messiah. Not only was he the seed of Abraham, but he was promised through Isaac, the son of Abraham. Genesis 21:12 says, But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. That's Ishmael. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And then we see in Luke 3, verse 34, The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac... The son of Abraham. That's the lineage through which Jesus came. He came out of the tribe of Judah. One of the twelve tribes of Israel. So not only that Abraham would be his father. Because that's not a big deal. Because all Jews descend from Abraham. And all Jews descend from Isaac. But now we're getting more specific. Which tribe he would come out of. Micah 5.2 But as for you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The clan of Judah. And we see in Luke 3:33 once again, the genealogy. Jesus, the son of Amadah, or I'm sorry, um, he's going back. The son of Amadah, Amadah, some guy with a really long name that I can't pronounce apparently. Amenadab the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. 
He was born in the, fest, the family of Jesse. So we're narrowing it down even more now. Not only the tribe of Judah, but the family of Jesse, who was, of course, David's father. Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 11.1. 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And then we see in the New Testament, Luke 3, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Solomon, the son of Nashon, the son of Jesse. But Jesse had other sons. So which son would he come out of? Well, we know that he was born in the house of David, the king. In Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteous in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And then again in Luke chapter 3, the son of Melia, the son of Mina, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. And where will this child be born? Well, the Old Testament tells us he will be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. Well, of course, we've all read the Christmas story. Where was Jesus born? According to Luke chapter 2, he was born in Bethlehem. Now, did Joseph and Mary live in Bethlehem? Because that would be obvious. That would be easy. I mean, this was crazy. They were on a trip. They were on vacation for just a couple days. And that's when the baby came. Because that's where God said he would be born. Now here's the peculiar one. It's the one we just read from Isaiah chapter 7. This is, this is the clincher. He would be born of a virgin. That's impossible. If you've had seventh grade biology, you know that is impossible. I'm not going to give you a lesson this morning. This is a prophetic lesson and a math lesson, not a biology lesson. He was born of a virgin. Now, a lot of people dispute that fact. But Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. Number eight, he was worshipped and presented gifts by kings. This little, this child of a lowly carpenter was visited, worshipped by, and given gifts by kings, royalty. Psalm 72.10 says, Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Sheba offer gifts. And in Matthew 2.11 we read, After coming to the house, they, that's the wise men as we call them, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts, excuse me, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now he was worshipped by the highest and he was worshipped by the lowest. We see that the Old Testament prophesied that he would be worshipped by shepherds. In Psalm 72, 9, it says, Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. And then Luke 2, 8 through 9 and 16. 
We read the story of the shepherds who were in the same region watching their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared and said, Behold, I bring you great tidings. And what were the tidings? It was of the birth of the Messiah. Just as the Old Testament had forecasted. And they came and they worshipped him. We also know that there would be many children murdered at his coming. In Jeremiah 31.15 it says, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And what do we know that Herod did according to Matthew 2, verse 16? Then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. Just as the Old Testament had prophesied. It prophesied that at this moment, as Herod is sending out his soldiers to murder the children... That Jesus and his family would flee to Egypt. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And we know in Matthew 2, verse 13 and 14, that the angel came to Joseph in a dream, told him to go to Egypt, and that's what they did. They prophesied that he would be called Lord. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, there it is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your and then in Luke 2.11, remember what the angel said to the shepherds? For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is called Christ the Lord. He's the Son of God. Psalm 2.7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. This is at Jesus' baptism. And a voice out of heaven, the voice of God the Father himself, said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now this is interesting, because now we're getting to details. Little details about the life of the Messiah. The Old Testament told us that he would be carried on a donkey, and more specifically the colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So not just an animal, not just a donkey, but a baby donkey. And Matthew 21 tells us that Jesus sent his disciples to get a donkey for him to ride into Jerusalem on to get the colt of a donkey. And that's exactly what he did. And then we see that the prophets tell us that Jesus would suffer and would die as the substitutionary atonement for mankind. If you'll look in Isaiah 53, and we're not going to read all of that today, it tells us about the suffering servant. How he would be bruised for our iniquities the iniquity of us all would be laid on him 
And the Father would be pleased to crush, to destroy His own Son. And of course, in the Gospel accounts, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 24, and John 19, we see the story of Jesus going to a cross, an innocent man dying a guilty man's death. Now this is what I think is the coolest one of all, at least of the 16 that I'm giving you. And this is the last one this morning. Once again, there are about 300. So thank the Lord I'm not going through all 300 this morning. Amen? <laughs> thank you, Derek. The exact date of the death of Jesus was foretold. In Daniel chapter 9, we have the prophecy of the 70 weeks. In Daniel 9, 24 through 27, it says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's, I, I think that refers to the Antichrist. Because it's a lowercase p for prince. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, which we know happened to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now what we have here is we have messianic prophecy and eschatological prophecy joining together. Because we're beginning to look to end times now through this prophecy of Daniel. But I want us to see the fulfillment of at least the first of this prophecy. The one who would be destroyed. Or the the prince, Messiah the prince, who would be killed. In Luke 2, 1-2 it says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of, Sirius, of Syria. Now, a history lesson. So we're getting more than prophecy and math. We're getting history here. Augustus reigned from 31 B.C. until 1480. And Quirinius was governor and took the census sometime between 6 to 4 B.C. And Luke 3.23 tells us that when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. So we know that 0 AD wasn't the year that Jesus was born. It was actually probably about four years before that. They just messed up in the calculating when they went to do the new calendar. But that's not really important. Um, but it is important when we come to counting those weeks that Daniel talks of. Daniel writes of the 70 weeks or the 77s. And from the context, these weeks or seven refer to groups of seven years, not just seven days. And we can examine history 
and line up the details of the first 69 weeks. The 70th week will take place at a future point. That's the eschatological prophecy coming into play. But the countdown of the 70 weeks begins with the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That's what it says in verse 25. And if you go back in your history books... We know that this decree was given by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. And we see this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5. So after seven sevens plus 62 sevens, or 69 times seven, that's 483 years. So Artaxerxes gives this command for the, for the Jews to return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild their city and later their temple. And we can count the years, 483 years after this, it states that the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, for us. He shall be cut off. He shall be killed. And I think here we have an unmistakable reference to the Savior's death on the cross. And if you take into consideration when Augustus and Quirinius were in leadership, If you take into consideration the date that we know when Artaxerxes gave this decree, and you count 483 years ahead of time, it lands right in that time frame where Jesus would have been in his 30s. In his book, The Coming Prince, this was written about 100 years ago, Sir Robert Anderson gave a detailed calculation of those 69 weeks using prophetic years, allowing for leap years, errors in the calendar, the change from A.C. to B.C., and figured that 69 weeks ended on the very day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? And the point is this, is the timing of Christ's birth and his death ties in exactly with the detailed prophecy that God gave to Daniel. That is amazing. That is a sign, a pointer, a confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. And I told you that would take the longest. Our math lesson is the short part of this message. Now, and the question that we have before us when it comes to this math lesson is, what is the probability of one man, one single human being, fulfilling all 300 prophecies pointing to the Messiah? And so in answering this question, I'm not going to try to figure it out because I'll be honest with you, I'm not that good at math. But the Professor Emeritus, or the once Professor Emeritus of Science at Westmont College, Dr. Peter Stoner, and hopefully, well, let's just, if you hear of somebody called Dr. Stoner, you're going to be like, can I really trust this guy, okay? Um, You can trust him, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But Dr. Stoner, and it's hard for me to say that without smiling, calculated the probability of one man fulfilling all of the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes. I want you to hear this process he went through. 12 different classes representing some 600 university students. 
the students carefully weighed all the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, examined the various circumstances which might indicate the man had conspired or planned to fulfill the prophecy. Those things that he could have manipulated. They took all these things into account. They made their estimates very conservative enough so that there was unanimous agreement among all the students, even the most um, skeptical ones. And then they took their estimates, if that was enough, and, and put them out amongst other universities and said, test these. Tell us if we're being too generous. So Professor Stoner took their estimates. He made them more conservative. He sent them out. Other scholars looked over them. And they finally came back and everyone was in agreement. So Dr. Stoner submitted his figures to to be reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. And upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate and could be printed could be published in a scientific journal. And so that's what he did. Now let me share with you some of what he published. Concerning Micah 5.2, it tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And I want you to see how meticulously they did these calculations. So Stoner and his students determined the average population of Bethlehem at that time. Then they divided it by the average population of the earth during that same time. And they concluded that the chance of one man, now this isn't a big deal because a lot of people were born in Bethlehem, but I just want you to see what they went through. The chance of one man being born in Bethlehem was one in 300,000. So somebody being born in Bethlehem at that time was a one in 300,000 chance. Now this is where the numbers get big. Then he took eight different messianic prophecies, just eight, eight of the 300. He examined them, they did their calculations, and they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros. I don't even know what that number is. It's a big number. But he said, that's not enough. Let's, let's jump to 48. Let's jump to 48 and see what that would do. So they calculated what chance a person would have would be of fulfilling 48 of the Messianic prophecies. Do you know how large the number was? They found that one person had the chance of fulfilling 48 of the 300 Messianic prophecies. The chance was 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's one with 157 zeros. And so Stoner gave an illustration to, to illustrate what that looks like, what 10 to, with 157 zeros looks like. He used electrons to illustrate this number. Of course, we know electrons are subatomic particles. They're very, very small. It takes 10 to the 37th power number of electrons laid side by side to make just one inch. 10 to the 37th. 
And if we counted 250 of these electrons each minute and counted day and night, it would still take 19 million years just to count of a, a line of electrons one inch long. That's 10 to the 37th. Think of 10 to the 157th. How big is that number? And that's just one-sixth of the 300 prophecies. The chance of someone fulfilling all 300 is more than astronomical. And yet, and yet, Jesus fulfilled every single one. The odds are incalculable that any one person could fulfill them all. That is mathematically impossible to calculate that big of a number. And yet, with God in the equation, the math is very simple. God was absolutely faithful in fulfilling His promise to send a Messiah who would bring redemption to a lost and dying world. Now, He waited at least 4,000 years between creating the earth, giving the promise to Adam and Eve, and actually bringing the Messiah. 4,000 years. That would seem like a long time to wait in our reckoning. So as the Lord tarries in coming back and as we wait for the other promises that God has made to us, I believe that we can wait with absolute certainty that even if we have to wait for 4,000 years, God is faithful. He always comes through. The question is, is will we wait patiently and faithfully for our God who is faithful? Jesus is the Messiah. All the signs point to Him. Without argument, without doubt, He is the promised one of God. The anointed one that God sent to us. Jesus is God's anointed that He might, through His death and resurrection, anoint all who would trust in Him with forgiveness and eternal life. If you'll remember at the, moment, or at the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke and confirmed the identity of His Son by saying, once again, as He said at the baptism, This is My Son with whom I am well pleased. And then He said something to the disciples. And it was just three simple words. Listen to Him. He's the Messiah. He's my son. Listen to him. Our command to every disciple of Jesus is to listen to his son, our Messiah. And Jesus, the the Messiah, indeed has much to say to us. We would expect this King of kings and Lord of lords, this God of heaven and earth, this creator of worlds and sovereign above and over all to give us commands and to rule our lives with an iron fist. And he has every right to do so. And while he does rule and reign, his words to us are so unexpected that it's jarring. And so, my friends, my church... As God the Father has said, listen to Him this morning. This sovereign galactic ruler gently says to you this morning, I have come to you so that you might come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. I have drawn near to you and dwelled among you that you might draw near with confidence to my throne room of grace. I have been with you so that you might now, at this moment, be with me by faith with my spirit. And then, of course, one day, joyously, face to face, as I will come again to take you to be where I am. I was broken for you so that I could put the broken pieces of your life back together and make you whole. I did that for you because I love you. Jesus the Messiah, He came to us just as the prophets foretold that He might die for us. And so the invitation to every person this morning from that God, that Messiah who came to us to die for us, He says, come to me this morning that you might live by me and for me. Amen.